cliffcentral.com. Yes, indeed. Fire it up is what we're all about this morning. This is cliffcentral.com. And when we talk about Nando's and we talk about uh, the burning platform, <clears throat> we're talking about things that are hot as hell. And this morning, hot is exactly what we need because it is freezing. So we're happy to get as warm as we could possibly get. Pumi Mashiko is here and Martin von Staden is here too. You know Martin, of course, from the show he's been on before. But just in case you don't know, we're going to talk to him because he is a libertarian jurist and author based in South Africa. He also does policy consulting. Is someone reversing? That sounded like yeah. someone was reversing. <laughs> <laughs> In my kitchen. It's the microwave. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, no, no worries. Sorry, guys. So, Martin, to just uh, fill, fill you in and to remind you, is um, a policy consultant for Saka Licha and for the Free Market Foundation. He recently wrote a piece called The State Must Stop Trying to Be the Public's Babysitter. And there's a lot to get into on that front. So, Martin, welcome back. And it's good to see you again. Uh, are you Are you as cold as we are? Where are you? You're in Joburg. I'm in Pretoria. Uh, I'm in Pretoria now, yeah. but yeah, it's it's nice and cold here, but that's uh, just the way I prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like the cold, do you? You're on your own oh, on yes. that one. Okay. So, guys, um, there's a lot to talk about here, but Martin, maybe we start off with your article, The State Must Stop Trying to Be the Public's Babysitter. This is an argument I get into with so many people, um, including friends of mine who are you know, free marketeers and libertarians just like you. But the reality is, Martin, the state is actually, it, it's necessary because so many people don't know what to do. And so many people don't like to be self-sufficient. They'd prefer to be told what to do. And many people don't have the means to look after themselves. So it's all good and well for people like us to say, ah, oh, you know, you should, you should take care of your own electricity needs. You should take care of your own water needs. You should take care of your own business needs. You should be able to hire and fire people as is your want. And the less government you have in your life, the better. Trust me, for me, that argument is already made up. But for so many people, that leaves them with absolutely nothing. They're left in the lurch. Now, in a country like South Africa, are these principles true? And what was, this, what was the slant of your article? And how was it received? Hmm. Yeah, look, so uh, there are always going to be uh, a vulnerable class of people. Uh, that's, that's unavoidable. But that vulnerable class is, is just so much bigger when you have a state that throttles economic activity as ours does, uh, not only in the last few decades, but over a period of centuries. Uh, so it's unsurprising that South Africa has such a, a massive group of people, over 11 million unemployed people right now, mm -hmm. uh, who simply cannot provide for themselves. Uh, it's very unsurprising surprising. Uh, and if South Africa had decided in 1994, for instance, to have a freer market, I would prefer a totally free market, but that's, that's not necessarily something you'd get. Then the economic growth uh, and economic activity that, that already started at that time, and uh, had a, we had, I think we had a 5% uh, growth rate around that, around that time, uh, that would have led to uh, a far lower unemployment rate, a far, uh, far more self-sufficient population, not, not an entirely self-sufficient one, of course, but it would have been better and we would so, have had more charity and so forth. So I, it, it would I, have I, been uh, I don't mean to interrupt far you, better but, for the poor. But essentially, sure. you're not a free market absolutist and you're not someone who believes that the state should have complete control either, obviously. You're somewhere in between. But if you had to rate South Africa in terms of, of the freeness of our market, for want of a better use of terminology, what would you say, one to ten, ten being a totally free market, one being complete state control, uh, which do you think we are? Where do you think we are along that scale? 
I would say about four and a half. Uh, I, I think we're uh, four and a half and declining, so we're becoming less less free. The uh, the Fraser Institute in Canada publishes the Economic Freedom of the World Index uh, report every year, as does the Heritage Foundation in the United States. Uh, South Africa had reached its peak of economic freedom, free market, uh, around the year 2000. Uh, and since then, we've been uh, almost in free fall. Uh, we're, we're in the, the third lowest quartile now, and we're uh, uh, getting into the fourth. So uh, our levels of economic freedom, and this is totally differently defined as what the, the, the Red Berets define economic freedom as, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we, we're totally declining in, in that respect. And I mean, I work in, in policy. It's what I do as a day job. Every single day, almost, we get new ridiculous policies from from the Department of Trade and Industry, from uh, from various government agencies, all are just there to apparently help the poor, but the uh, the 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 end result of what they achieve is uh, uh, is detrimental, especially to to people's freedom. And I think everyone values freedom, even though they don't necessarily vote that way. If you sit someone down and ask them who should be making decisions for you, you or someone sitting in a government office in Pretoria, I think the answer most of the time will be, I should be making those decisions. Uh, so there's a bit of a disconnect between the way people uh, live out their their political choices and, and what they say they want. Um, uh, so so this this is deleterious to freedom and to prosperity. All right. Uh, and my yeah. article touched a bit on that, uh, uh, on, on the point that... Uh, uh, lifestyle controls don't achieve the results that they say they would. Uh, uh, less uh, smoking, less uh, alcohol consumption. They simply, mm. at least in the European Union, they, they don't achieve what they set out to achieve. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to achieve those outcomes, you want economic growth, you want a more a- economically active population so that more people can start paying for their own health care, so that people it could be healthier. And for that, you need less lifestyle control policies. You need people in the market to be free and dynamic to make these decisions for themselves. Uh, and with that, you'll, you'll find more better economic outcomes. And as a result of that, better human development outcomes, better uh, chi- uh, uh, morality, uh, uh, Mort- mortality. Yeah, mortality. Uh, uh, Lower child uh, mortality. So, towards, all right, Martin, yes, I mean, no. let's also, Pums, sorry, you're on mute, Pumi. Just unmute your mic. It's the microwave got me on mute and now I've forgotten. But Martin, I have a question. I mean, this this is your area of of interest and expertise is around policy. And you say, you know, kind of coming out of nineteen ninety-four, hmm. we needed different policies, and yet the peak of 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 what you term our economic freedoms was in 2000. So there's obviously something between 1994 and 2000 that the government got right. Mm. And what would those things be? And what has changed? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, this is uh, something that people don't don't often uh, note, and that is that the ANC and the, the new democratic government had quite a free market slant to it. Uh, 
quite surprising to many people at the time. But if you read, uh, for instance, our land policy, the Democrat, the first democratic government's land policy uh, that was about from 1994 to 1998, or perhaps even until the early 2000s, it would uh, mention things like the apartheid government provided too many subsidies to farmers, they provided too much uh, control of prices and so forth, and that that stifled the market, it stifled farmers from getting market prices. So the, the first democratic government was very aware of the fact that uh, the apartheid South Africa had uh, throttled the economy with its, its regulatory uh, economic uh, policies. And the, the, the first democratic government simply wanted a freer market. And the, the gear policy of the time, the overarching national policy was, was quite free market. But, uh, yeah, from uh, the late 1990s, uh, we started seeing things like, uh, our, our very draconian labor legislation, which, uh, forced a lot of people into unemployment and kept incredible amounts of people out of employment. Um, and from those years onwards, we had uh, more interventionist policies. I'm not sure what led to that, but obviously the Zuma years from 20 to 2007, uh, 2008, 2009, thereabouts onwards, that represented a, a massive uh, uh, shift from the, I guess, call it moderate Mbeki years. It wasn't perfect by any means. That was also quite an interventionist government. But uh, with the Zuma years, it became it became but far worse. And with the Ramaphosa years, it's become a, a pig's breakfast, to be totally honest. All right, but Martin, the, the government in South Africa, for better or worse, we've got to deal with reality. And, and the practical mm-hmm. truth is that the government is the biggest player in the economy anyway for mm-hmm. for various reasons. I mean, the state is still the greatest actor. So the state spends more than anyone else and it buys more than anyone else. Um, and and it, it, it is obviously responsible for taking in through our taxes more money than any single business in the country does. Um, these are just realities. So it is there to deal with. And even in a free economy, if we started tomorrow with policies of a completely free economy, the biggest actor in that free economy would still be the government, ironically. So how do you see that You know, in an ideal world? How would you see that playing out? And second of all, how would you see the role of the state diminishing over time in a free market economy and not growing like it has in South Africa, because obviously public health care, public education, um, all the spending around coronavirus, which is for some reason got completely out of control and has involved huge amounts of corruption and fraud. How do we how do we limit and mitigate those effects? Yeah, you're totally correct. Uh, the state is this reality. It's it's not uh, alone. It's uh, it's the biggest employer, but the private sector obviously still employs more people, and uh, uh, I think that should give us a reason uh, and and more sustainable employment. Really, people who work in the state unfortunately don't produce uh, in in the in the way we understand production of of economically valuable goods and services. Uh, a lot of the state has a lot of dead weight. So it it it's in that respect, it's the biggest employer, uh, the biggest single employer as well. But uh, that's something that that we should put our mind to reducing, uh, and and certainly gradually. Uh, uh, we 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 want to reduce the the role of the state gradually. As you noted, a lot of people are now dependent on the state. It would simply not be fair uh, in any way, shape, or form for us to take away the so the 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 facade of a social safety net that that we have in South Africa even it it, it helps very little but it it helps a little bit so it's it's it, it can st- stick around uh, but we need to start replacing that and and one idea that uh, uh, came from Milton Friedman the uh, uh, 
great free market economist, was, yes, you should have a basic income grant, but what that should do is that should replace all or as many uh, existing social welfare uh, policies as possible uh, so that so as to cause the, the least market interference. So we are talking about a social uh, a basic income grant in South Africa now, but this is going to be in addition to all the existing nonsense. Uh, the I think the ideal here would be for uh, a universal basic income to replace every social child grant, to replace a state education so well, that people can use their basic income to, to, to use their education. Martin? Hmm? Who's yeah. got it right? Who in the world? Which economy in yeah, the in world? Yeah, in your opinion, that's a good question. Got it right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you look at the two economic freedom indexes that I mentioned earlier. Uh, everyone in the top top quartile has the right idea. So that's going to be uh, the 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 two top economies for the last few years have been uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, they're not totally uh, absent a state there, but uh, they they do have uh, Hong Kong uh, less uh, increasingly less so uh, with with Chinese interference there. Uh, but then you also have, uh, funnily enough, uh, many European countries. People call these uh, states uh, these massive interventionist states. But countries like Germany, like Scan- uh, Scandinavian states, uh, Sweden, Norway, they all rank quite highly on economic freedom uh, indexes. And that's because they've preferred a social welfare state with high taxes. Uh, but at the same time, they provide extreme uh, protection for private property. Uh, they uh, have very little regulation of economic activity uh, because I think at some level, uh, people, uh, policymakers in these countries realize that you need so a wait, free me... economy to fund your welfare state. So am, am I understanding you correctly? You're saying that the guys who do have it right actually have social welfare in place. Yeah. So they have an interventionist government mm-hmm. and, and they got it right. And you are yeah. less of an interventionist government and you hope we're going to get it right. No, no, no. I know we're going to get it right. <laughs> uh, we, it, it's not a hope. We, we see this. If, if there's less regulation in an, in an economy, there's more economic activity. And that means there's more taxes available to the state. And that means the state can fund more social programs. So we need to make a, a distinction between uh, social programs, which is uh, welfare, and uh, state regulation of the economy. These are two different areas of government activity. And if you reduce state regulation of the economy, uh, you're going to have more money to fund your social welfare programs. And that's why I said uh, a gradual uh, uh, shift uh, in social welfare. I, I don't want social welfare to be abolished immediately. That would simply be unfair. Uh, but over a period unfair of, and, of years, and as the South African economy gets richer, as South Africans are no longer unemployed and... Uh, uh, Begging at the, at the back of the state, right. then you uh, you have better outcomes. I, I, uh, so. Let's talk a little bit about the, the economies of of those countries who have got it right, uh, and where the reliance of those economies is. Right. So South Africa is a heavily services. You know, we've got primary in mining and all of that, but heavily mm. a services type of economy. Mm. Whereas, you know, if I think about Germany and those economies, they're production economies. So how likely is it that with the service-geared economy like we have, that we can implement successfully some of the policies that you dream about? 
Oh, absolutely. Very successfully. Uh, if you look at uh, Singapore and uh, Hong Kong, these are also uh, service-based economies. And the re- uh, I mean, they have no natural resources whatsoever to speak of. Zip. Uh, uh, these are 100% service-based economies. And uh, the reason why they did so well in Hong Kong's, I know Hong Kong's history a bit better, uh, was during the British rule there, they had a, a finance secretary who pursued a policy of what he called uh, active no- uh, non-intervention. So the policy was we are going to leave the market alone. And that turned Hong Kong, for instance, into a, a tax haven that attracted international finance, that brought more jobs. People just wanted to do business in Hong Kong because they knew the state was going to stay out of their way. And today, Hong Kong is one of uh, so. The, the data from China is always a bit sketchy, but Hong Kong has one of but, the most prosperous uh, 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 peoples in the world uh, mm. because of that type of policy. But Hong Kong's three biggest exports, where they make the most money mm. in Hong Kong, is they export diamonds, export diamonds that they work and set. They mm. export electrical transformers. They produce mm. those things. It's not a service. And mm. printed circuits, they produce yep. those things. Those are not yep. services. No, no, no. So but we, we don't do any of those things. We don't, yeah, but, we don't export. Yeah, yeah, but anything but remember, except raw materials. No, yes, but this, remember, Hong Kong, that, that, that production did not uh, fall out of the sky. That came as a result of them not having a interventionist state. We have, our, our economy is very much also a product of the state policies that we have. Now, imagine if the state stood back, we would have more, uh, more right, production. With can, I, can, I just stop, can I just stop uh, sure. the, the theoretical conversations here for a second? I know what Pumi's getting at is we've often had socialists on here who tell us about their ideal mm. and, and their ideals mm. is, is a little bit pie in the sky to, to my ears and to my eyes. And and maybe to many people, yours is also pie in the sky. Let's deal with some reality for a second here, because I think it's oh. it's all good and well. And I know you're a policy guy, and and maybe oh. you're also one of those people who like Tabo Mbeki see politics as the art of the possible, right? Maybe you are. I don't know. The fact is, we do have a welfare system in this country, and it's it's a oh. it's a hugely burdensome one. We are, I think, it's three in every ten people in South Africa are on social grants as we speak at the moment. The president made a statement just last week that he'd actually like to see that grow, which is a very strange thing for anyone to say. Let's just talk for a minute. And, and Pums, I want to bring you in on this because I know you're, you're, you're no fan of the, of the president and his policies. And you also think that the things he says sometimes don't make any sense. This one made no sense to me at all. And if either of you have a way to explain it, perhaps you can help me and many other people who were confused by it. Why would the president want to see more people on social grants in South Africa? That seems counterintuitive to me. Uh, yeah, I, I have a theory. <laughs> okay, let, let's hear your theory. Uh, yeah. Let's go. Yeah, look. So uh, uh, in the the ANC has seen seen a decreasing amount of support over recent years. Uh, in fact, uh, since the the turn of the century, its support has has increasingly decreased. Uh, and one of the things that uh, a government, unfortunately, in a very poor society like ours, 
uh, thrives under is, be, is being able to tell its voters, I'm taking care of you. Uh, I'm, I am the one behind your, your uh, sustenance. And uh, uh, if government creates more dependency through getting more people on social grants and, inf- and, and unfortunately um, essentially making people poorer through policy, uh, uh, drowning people in policy, then uh, you do have more dependency. Uh, and I mean, with the, the amendment of the Constitution to order down property rights as well, you're going to have more dependency there on state leases of your property. Uh, so in my view, it's, it's always a drive towards creating more state dependency and the government hoping that translates into to more political support for it and its policies so that it stays in power. All right. Well, that's a theory. Pums, do you want to add to that? Well, I think it's easy um, and actually quite lazy thinking to say the government is wanting to create more dependency. What the government wants is it wants voters. What the government has is it has huge unemployment, which means all of those unemployed people have no way of subsisting, of living in the world. And so to get all of those people who aren't working and not making an income to believe in you and vote for you, you've got to give them an answer to their problems. And their biggest problem is I have no way of making money. So rather than giving them a solution to how they can make money, the expedient thing to do is to give them money. It's not right. because they're trying to get them more dependent. They just want voters. And that's what you've got to solve. In, in order for people to vote for you, you've got to solve their problems. And if the problem that the people have, the numbers came out yesterday, and they're shocking, the numbers that we have. Right. You know, at yeah, the no. moment. You've just got to solve their problem. You've got to yeah. solve their problem, and that's what they're doing. It's not because they want people to be more dependent on them. They think that they're taking the easiest route to solving that problem so that people will vote for them or continue to vote for them. Yeah, no, I think we see, we see it the same way, essentially. Uh, dep- I think dependence means people are going to vote for the, pe- the person they're dependent on. All right. So I, I agree completely. Yeah. F- fair enough. And I think you both raise very important points here. You've helped me to understand that a little bit better. It's, it's, it's basically um, it's campaigning. It's not really what he thinks. It, this is his way of, of appealing to voters. Now, if we have the problem of unemployment, which is undoubtedly our biggest problem in this country, by all metrics, that seems to be the thing that worries most South Africans is getting a job and holding on to a job, being able to pay for food and shelter for their families. Now, Most uh, South Africans, but not our politicians. Not our politicians, no. I mean, they're not interested in, they don't care about security. They don't care about a roof over their heads. They don't care about a salary. All of that is paid for by us, and, and, and we pay through the nose for it. But let's just look at those people who are unemployed because we've had unionists on here for me. We've had um, economic uh, geniuses. We've had people who are policymakers like Martin. We've had people who are just pure political hacks. But the reality is we haven't had anyone on the show who speaks for or can represent unemployed people in this country. And there are lots of people who appoint themselves as the, 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 the people who have a mandate, a made-up, completely fabricated mandate from the unemployed. What is it? That we can ascertain about this group, this increasing, increasingly um, uh, angry and increasingly dissatisfied and increasingly apathetic when it comes to the polls group of people. What do they want? Because there's no one to speak for them. And anyone who, who does claim to speak for them, I'm extremely suspicious of. What do we know about these people and what can we do to improve their lives? Because we cannot have a situation where their numbers keep growing and where their dissatisfaction keeps growing in, in, in lockstep with that. What are we going to do? 
Jesse sent a message that says, uh, I hope Jesse seems to be a guy that Jesse, he's unemployed. Yeah. Right. You send, send us, the, I, I would love to hear what you think we can do, Jesse. But while he's typing all of that up, I think for me, and this is the point, Martin, that I was making to you earlier, mm. in, a, in an economy like ours, where most of the money that is made by the big businesses and also government is providing a service to the people in this country. We cannot export that service. Therefore, we cannot make money from outside. That is where we are. We need more of a production-based economy. We need to diversify our economy, that we are creating things, that we are making tangible things that we can right. sell to other now, people. That's a, that's a good starting point. But actually, we need to, before we can have any of that, we need to have the skills that we require to, to make those businesses that manufacture and produce, right? And, and no, I'm, I'm worried that we're not doing that. Our universities are singularly turning into places that do not give people skills. Instead, they give people academic qualifications and lots and lots of experience in theory and none in practice. We've, we've stopped. The technicons don't exist anymore, but we need people who have those skills to be able to manufacture and produce. And I don't know that our education system is geared to maximize that part of the economy. Do, do either of you agree with that or do you think that, that maybe I'm, I'm missing something here? I agree with both of you. I mean, we, we, I think a diversified economy is obviously going to be uh, far, far better for job creation. And obviously for that, you need people with skills. But at the end of the day, people are, uh, people with skills decide to leave South Africa. Uh, we see this with medical professionals. Uh, we see this, uh, uh, also with, uh, I mean, engineers. We've had this big story about, uh, we're, importing engineers from elsewhere to come and take care of uh, right. South Africa's infrastructure problems. And it's not like these people are just leaving because they don't like the country anymore. Uh, when when Salkalicha, for instance, did a, a recent survey among some of our members, uh, it's almost unanimous that uh, uh, a lot of our, our corporate members, uh, that they, they, they're not they're no longer employing South Africans because the policy environment is too difficult. They are uh, disinvesting from South Africa as much as they can because the policy environment is too difficult. And some of them are even saying, yeah, I'm, I'm closing down. I'm, I'm leaving. I, I can't, I can't take the nonsense anymore. So it's not, it's not an accident that we don't have a, a developing production base in South Africa. It's, it's not something that's just the result of circumstance. Uh, it's, it's certainly the result of political forces and of policy uh, decisions that have been made here. And also of skill, as you've, you've pointed out, our, our terrible education system, our terrible state education system, our private schools perform with the best of them around the world. And that is, again, no accident. Uh, our universities are still okay. But uh, in, in medicine, for instance, we have a government that limits the supply of doctors, the amount of people who can write their med medical exams every year. What a ridiculous proposition in a country such as ours uh, for, for a government to, to have such supply-side restrictions. So uh, my, my bottom line is that uh, most of South Africa's biggest problems uh, can, can if, if not solved, be significantly uh, reduced if government... Uh, conceives even for a second that I need to step back as a solution rather than I need to intervene more and drown out more economic activity, drown out more consumer freedom, drown out more uh, uh, ownership okay. decision-making, uh, then we have, a, we have a, a good recipe on our hands. Pums, what, what are your comments on that? And, and 
on p- particularly the point that Martin raises about state intervention, but with with a special you know nod to our education system and where we're missing a, a trick. You know the 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 unfortunate thing about education and getting education right is that it's a long term solution. Mm-hmm. You know before you you can start to say I've produced the it's it's generational. 12, yeah, years. I mean like it's, it's twelve fifty. Before Absolutely. you can start seeing an intervention, if you started an intervention today in the education system, mm-hmm. the result you will only see in 15 years, right? When the right. first cohorts come out of high school, come out of tertiary, all of that kind of stuff. So, and, and you know, and I think that there definitely is a need. And, and I would love to see more of this. You know, people working in policy, people like Martin, is I would really love to see more of we've got to think about practical short-term solutions that can work in conjunction with the long-term solutions. So while you fix the education system, you know, so we can sit here today and look back and say, you know, some of the bad decisions that were made by uh, past ministers who have since passed in the education (laughs) department, debacle, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, all of that, we can sit and look back, but actually what we need to be doing now is we need to be thinking about what are the short-term solutions and interventions that can work alongside long-term solutions. Unfortunately, our government has abandoned all thinking. Well, here, here's a point by Johan about a very particular part of the economy which gets an enormous amount of attention, and especially from the politicians. Johan says the government has single-handedly destroyed the mining and first beneficiation cycle. Now we're exporting ore where before we never had to. So that's that's another good example of where, where policy goes horribly wrong. So uh, Pumi and Martin, and let's just move on to some current affairs because I know people don't always come to the burning platform to hear us talk about economic theory <laughs> and to talk about like, like uh, policy decision-making. Political ideologies. Of course. I mean, that can get very boring. So let's talk about one or two things that are going on in the news and just have your comments briefly on these. Uh, Health Minister Zwelim Kieser, and we brought this up earlier, Pums, he's obviously in some hot water at the moment. There's a dodgy multi-million rand contract involving his department. It's very embarrassing because he was lauded as the guy who helped South Africa through the coronavirus pandemic. And now Sivuwe uh, Hwarube, who is the DA's shadow minister of health, said they would be laying a complaint against the department and against the minister. So what do we make of this? Obviously, the DA is just doing what opposition politics is all about. It's all about making your uh, your enemies in parliament look stupid, and that's what they're trying to do here. But they're already looking stupid, and the ANC are trying to clean house, at least symbolically, by saying that they've got this policy where you must step aside if, you, if you're caught in any kind of corruption. What's going to happen to Zwenim Kiza, in your opinion, and what do we make of this? Yeah, no. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I don't think anything's going to happen to him. Uh, South Africa doesn't really take care of corruption at the highest level. Uh, we might see a few uh, 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 other uh, people, maybe the people he dealt with in the private sector, uh, some some type of uh, charges going there. I, I don't, if he's found guilty of this, of course, or if, uh, I don't know if there's even going to be a trial or anything like that. Uh, but obviously, I, I think he should he should step aside. I think where there's smoke, there's, there's probably a fire. Uh, and, and he should have, have his day in court. But that's, again, that's a, a pie-in-the-sky uh, ideal that uh, we can dream about. I don't think we're going to see that. Pums? Yes, Gareth, missing. 
Uh, no, no. You know, one of the things that we talk about no, I'm, a lot. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm here. I just why do we pay so much? Why do we pay so much attention to ANC internal squabbles and politics? I think we have to because now what we see is we see it spill it into our government and into Absolutely. the public sector. So, you know, it's to know what will or will not happen to Zulim Kiza is to understand where his uh, where he stands in the ANC squabble and versus Ramaphosa or versus any other faction because that's that's exactly what's going to happen. That's what's going to and what's happening in the ANC in the KZN with their PC and they're about to have their own electoral conference uh, very soon is going to be an indication for us to know what is going to happen to Zulim Kiza, whether Zulim Kiza is going to keep his job mm-hmm. or whether he's going to be protected and somebody is going to be a scapegoat in this yeah. This is why we have to pay attention to the factional battles within the AIDS. Um, I just want to quickly refer back to Jesse, who messaged us earlier as an unemployed person and says he doesn't have anyone to speak for him. I know we, we, we're jumping around here, but Jesse says opportunities. What we need is opportunities. There are more people looking for jobs than there are jobs available. If it was easier to get your first job, if I didn't have to travel 20 kilometers for an opportunity. So I think there it is. There's there's somebody who's looking for a job who listens to us every day. Um, the unemployed don't all look the same. They don't all live in the same kind of places. They don't all have the same problems. But what Jesse's saying here is, I think, something that you could broadly say is across the board an issue for unemployed people. Opportunities are scarce. Um, the ability to access those opportunities is even more difficult for unemployed people yeah. because of traveling distance, um, of, of the location of those opportunities that might be or might not be available. I think that's a very yeah. honest answer. Th- thank you for that, uh, for, for Jesse, for your answer. I think that makes it a little bit easier for us to understand how, you know, the problem can be alleviated in some way, shape or form. Do either of you have comments on that before we move on? Yeah, I would just mention that uh, uh, a good way to increase opportunities is to exempt the smallest businesses in South Africa from South Africa's onerous labor laws, for instance, the national minimum wage. Uh, I'm sure there would be many more opportunities in Jesse's area if small businesses, entrepreneurs in his area could uh, uh, simply employ him without having to jump through uh, to any government hoops. So this is an idea that the government has toyed with before, but not to any significant extent. And that is really to start exempting the smallest businesses, uh, micro businesses even, from the the most onerous of our labor laws. And I'm sure that that will lead to millions of, of job opportunities. So that's that's just something I think can be noted on that. Okay. Can we talk about the the Pan African Parliament for a second? Because pandemonium <laughs> pandemonium <laughs> broke, broke out there yes. on Monday. Uh, EFF leader Julius yeah, well, uh, EFF leader Julius Malema was seen leaving the venue after what appeared to have been an altercation with other members of parliament. The violence broke out during leadership elections, with a number of members becoming involved in heated altercations. One person called for help after the members clashed, with some, with some of them throwing punches. Uh, Julius Malema said he would kill someone. Uh, there was even an intervention by somebody shouting, you can't hit a woman, when the ANC's Pemi Majodina was thrown out. Uh, there were cries for help. Dude, because she was almost kicked in the face yes. by the guy from Mali. <clears throat> right. So what the hell is this? And, and what does this tell us about the state, not only of the AU and the Pan-African Parliament, 
but of personality battles for positions in in South Africa and and because again we were sadly front and center in all of this you know, you know there there are, there are more than 40 countries in Africa but South Africa is right up there when it comes to bad behavior in the Pan-African Parliament. What do you guys think of this? What kind of message does this send to the rest of the world? And what does it tell us in South Africa about our own duly elected leaders? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that we should start at, at stop conceiving of these people as leaders in any way, shape or form. Uh, it's, it's a ridiculous show, and uh, we've obviously seen it in our own parliament before. Uh, I think the Pan-African Parliament uh, made its first mistake when it let someone like Julius Malema in the door in the first place, uh, rather than protecting its own integrity uh, and, and keeping uh, characters like that out. Um, and I mean, there are many, uh, clearly, uh, South Africa is not the only, uh, 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 pr- uh, problem child on the African continent in this respect. Um, uh, I, I read that the problem with the Pan African Parliament is that it struggles to, to make itself a relevant, in- a relevant institution on the African continent. And that's definitely part of, part of the issue. Uh, uh, uh there is uh, every African state and. Did and, you say, and, did you say uh, relevant or irrelevant institution? I, I yeah, missed... it, it's struggling. Yeah, it's struggling to make itself relevant. Okay. Uh, uh, so the the, <laughs> right. the Pan African Parliament has no role to play, and I mean that's that's understandable. And the AU as as a whole will will actually never really have a, a role to play in Africa because of the types of personality battles, uh, not only between African states but within African states. There's there's going to be no surrendering of sovereignty by any any African state to the AU so as to give the Pan African Parliament any kind of uh, a role to play on the continent. Right. So it's really just one of those, uh, something that uh, uh, Georgia Yite called uh, the, uh, it's, it's a club of dictators, of, reti- of old dictators. And it's, it's going to remain that. Uh, you're going to have the same personalities going there to essentially campaign uh, uh, because uh, the so- sovereign African group, for instance, is... Um, they want the presidency of the Pan-African Parliament to be rotational, and the East and West Africans want it to be a, a majority election. So it's it's very much an irrelevant uh, squabble. But and, of it, and it does it, it does nothing. It does nothing to the individual no. countries. That doesn't change anybody's behavior. We can't seem to pull no. into line any of the people who are misbehaving across the continent. Pums, do you want to add something to that? Because I feel like there's a huge amount of. Like this is precisely the kind of fertile ground that 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 a lot of anti-African and even racist stuff grows in. And unfortunately for us, this is what people who don't like us in the world will focus on. This is this kind of 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 bad behavior. And remember, there are parliaments all over the world. I mean, the Japanese parliament, they've got into fistfights. They've got into fistfights in South Korea. They've got into fistfights in in European uh, legislatures. So that's not unusual. But of course, for Africa and for our pan-African parliament, this just sends all the wrong signals. So I wish JJ was here to have this conversation because, you know, there are so many intricacies when you think about all the fights. So the rotational issue is fascinating for me because it's it's the Francophone countries basically fighting with yep. the English countries Ang- about yeah. who should be the leader of this of this um parliament. And and that that's such a warped thinking, right? Mm. Is here here you've got based on old colonial fault lines mm-hmm. is what these people yeah. are using. 
to fight about. They haven't even started to think, and we've always known this, I've said this on the show before, that the problem in Africa is Africa's politicians and Africa's leaders. They're, they're too old, they're too removed from what the problems are that the people, <laughs> which is why they can't find their relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, So we have a whole continent where the average age of the citizens of this continent is 19 years old. Yep. And you look at all those utopies fighting over there yes. for scraps. You know, so on the days that they do show up for the sitting of parliament, because most of the time they just spend shopping in Santa. They just hear and that's why it always here in South Africa, right? It's, mm-hmm. So they can have access to all of these things that they haven't created in their own economies. That's the problem of Africa is our politicians. I wish we could have more young people step up into these places and and, and really deal with the issues that are the issues because there are many issues that Africa, if Africa, and there's a good idea around pan-Africanism, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if we were able to easily move goods and people and money across all of the, the states, mm-hmm. the states that is Africa, you suddenly have a market of almost a billion people that Absolutely. you can sell goods and services to. But yeah. okay, but, but that would, that would that. require, as Martin says, that would require people to, to, give up some of their sovereignty, at least uh, less control over the flow of money and the flow of goods over borders, which, you know, if you want free trade, you have to be willing to release a little bit of control. And Martin, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, that's hardly likely, especially where countries that depend entirely on tariffs, some of them completely arbitrary, um, and and countries that that produce nothing and who have people who who they control with with an iron glove, those those leaders are not going to give up any of their power. Yeah, look, so they've, uh, in principle, they've accepted that, that tariffs and so on should be done away with. So the African Free Trade Agreement uh, has been ra- uh, agreed to by, I think, most African states. Most of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and not all of them yet. And that, that I think, aims to eliminate something like 90% of trade barriers and so on. So I'm, I mean, that's that that would be brilliant uh, if, if that were to, to play out. Uh, I'm skeptical about whether that's that's going to be the, the, the practice of it. I think when, when they, they realize yeah, we're gonna. Uh, our governments, which, as you note, is are are mostly dependent on on uh, on import tariffs and so on, yeah. uh, are not gonna have the spending money anymore. Then I think there's gonna be a renewed round of resistance. But uh, uh, if to to the extent that Africans uh, have a voice in their countries, I would say, yeah, definitely push for the African free trade area to to be implemented uh, uh, because uh, that's really gonna be a boon to the African economy. Um, but but at the same time, that shouldn't mean we should do what Ibrahim Patel is now proposing, and that is we should now uh, increase uh, tariffs on European imports and Asian imports. No, we we want cheap consumer goods in South Africa, please, God. Uh, So uh, open trade with Africa, but keep trade open in general as well, and that that will be beneficial. I'm sorry to rush us along, but there are lots of people asking, and Lucy is one of them. Lucy Lockett says, are you not paying attention to the Fauci scandal (laughs) with a bunch of question marks, funded the Wuhan lab, new COVID was made in the lab, huge cover-up, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark for about a 100 of them. So, yes, okay, we've got to talk about this because this is something that's been driving me crazy. Um, A year ago, there were people who said 
this is the China virus. It was it was grown and and artificially um, engineered, or at least improved in inverted commas, in this lab. Gain of function research is what they called it. Um, of course, that was denied. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been trying in the last couple of weeks to distance himself from the fact that the the, the Centers for Disease, Disease Control, of which he is the head, are largely the people who've been funding some of that research in China or, or a large part of that research. It's uh, deeply disturbing to think that everybody who considered Dr. Fauci to be this hero who had the science on his side for the majority of the time that we've been battling this coronavirus, that he may have been complicit in its creation. And we know that the Chinese government did only the bare minimum to keep it from spreading to the rest of the world and went draconian on their own people in Wuhan, sometimes soldering and welding them into their houses. Mm. What is the ultimate price that must be paid for people who have misled the entire world and created pandemonium for the world's economies, cost people their jobs, their livelihoods, their happiness, their health, and in some cases, their lives. There surely has to be some kind of accounting for this. And these emails that have suddenly come out, which prove not only that Dr. Fauci was uh, in cahoots with all kinds of people in all the wrong places and making political decisions rather than scientific ones or medical ones, we also know that he was in conversation with our own Dr. Glenda Gray. Some of the emails reveal that. What do we make of this? And, and how can we... How can we hold to account the people who all over the world would regard it as the only authorities on this and anyone who said anything against them was shut down on Facebook, shut down on Twitter, shut down on Instagram, called a conspiracy theorist? What, what can we do to rebalance the books after this new information has come out? Yeah, well, I, I would say that at the very least, uh, these people should uh, find themselves unemployed. I would love to say that there should be legal action taken against them. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, the governments that they serve were all too willing to lob up whatever uh, nonsense they serve them. And that's the same in South Africa. Whenever a, a group of medical experts says we need to lock down, then government locks down. But when another group of medical experts says, hey, we should open up, then the government says go to hell. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, the experts are in a very perverse relationship with politicians and and I think that yeah we can't take legal action against someone for something that the government really actually wanted to hear from them mm -hmm. so I mean I agree that, that these people should at least lose their jobs and really they should lose the respect that they, they had amongst the public and amongst the scientific community and that's why organizations like Panda in South Africa which I'm sure you're aware of um, are so important. They've provided the alternative. Uh, well, they've uh, also alternative. Uh, I mean, uh, Martin, they've come under huge fire from people in in the media who've said they've been yeah. misinforming or disinforming South Africans. Uh, turns out, with the with the increased uh, information that we're now privy to, that actually the people who've been misinforming and disinforming us seem to have been the mainstream media largely. Exactly. No, exactly. And that's that's why you need an independent mind amongst your citizenry. Uh, stop lobbing up whatever is put in front of you. And, and really this idea of the scientific consensus and we need to follow the science. Yeah, that's it's important to follow the science, but public policy has its own principles and you cannot just neatly take the science and throw it upon public policy. You you need yeah. to understand <clears throat> that's the science of public policy as well. And that's not something that the public, unfortunately, at, at this stage uh, appreciates where we're trying to, uh, uh, to square around whole with with many of these suggestions. So, yeah, we, we need independent 
independently thinking people. And that's why, again, Panda and so on are such crucial institutions. And we need more of that around around the world where the dominant narratives are challenged. Um, Pums, uh, I, Dr. Fauci was, I, I don't think you ever you lionized him, but you know, he, he was the world's favorite guy for a long time. He was the, the, the Corona fighter. You know, people were excited to see him on television. He was also the anti-Trump guy for a while, which is where I think a lot of his fame and glory came from because people just hated Trump so much that Fauci had to be, uh, the, the guy who he was, he was taking on. It will be interesting to see how in a couple of days when the excitement and all the dust settles, mm. how the rest of the world kind of reorganizes around who we are. Because the reality of the situation is that we are here and there is this pandemic and everybody is trying to wrap their heads around all of the damage that's happened, not just to the economies around the world, but to to lives and livelihoods, you know. So I think it would be interesting to see how we re reorganize ourselves now that all of this information is out well uh, yeah that's it's it's not going to be straightforward is it because um unfortunately the biggest loser in all of this isn't dr fauci it isn't uh, all those people who've lost their lives or all their jobs uh, i think that the real loser is truth is science because science has been so weaponized and politicized by both sides of the spectrum certainly in the united states but even here at home that What's happened is that people who've disagreed with each other on the basis of evidence and science and fact and truth, and there's always room for disagreement. That's what science is about. It's not about establishing absolute truth. It's about trying to pick holes in it. Um, What's happened, though, is that all of that's been politicized to the the stage now where everything you do is political, whether you wear a mask, Mm. whether you socially distance, whether you open up your economy or whether you shut it down further, whether you try to get your citizens to vaccinate themselves or you try to bribe them into vaccinating themselves or you stand against vaccinations. All of this is now so political that for ordinary people, it's become impossible to see what the thing is that you should do for your own health and security. And unfortunately, I think that's going to have long-term ramifications. We already knew going into this pandemic that trust in government and trust in media was at extremely low levels, extremely low levels. I think if anything, this new information that we're starting to get now about Wuhan, about Fauci, about how coronavirus has worked and how the numbers were vastly overstated right in the beginning – All of that is going to damage the media and it's going to damage government's reputation further. And I think that that's something that they thought would would be the opposite of what it may be. Yeah, excellent that the government's reputation is going to be damaged. Uh, and I think that was uh, uh, foreseeable. The the first, uh, the knee-jerk reaction to COVID was, hey, let's destroy the economy around the world and uh, totally revoke the freedom of citizens. The idea that people should uh, look after themselves to an extent uh, wasn't even present, even in the richest societies, uh, with Sweden being the exception. But I mean, the point you make about uh, uh, truth and really discourse being the greatest victim, I mean, that's that's totally correct. Uh, a year or two ago, it would have been totally uncontroversial to argue that a mask that you buy at, at a five rand store is not going to save you from a respiratory 
virus would have been an uncontroversial thing to say. But if you even go down that route today, you are labeled as a COVID denier, uh, as 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 all sorts of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you if you are there is seen somewhere without a mask that does not work, then then there's nachfir. Uh, so it's it's um. It's a bit of a radicalization of of normal politics, which is so bloody unnecessary, really. Uh, and and this idea that we need to be 1.5 meters or what is it now, two meters from each other. What what nonsense is that? So if you step in into that bound, and suddenly you're gonna get COVID. It's 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 all really uh, a bunch of, of of hogwash. And that's what happens fundamentally when you uh, uh, mix politics, politics which fundamentally you, needs to be about. Do government. you guys remember where, where in in certain countries? I think it was Belgium. There was a, a health minister who said that you can have sex with two or three people, but not more than that. I mean, this is how we've allowed governments to get involved in our lives. I mean, this is in a supposedly first world country. And I love when, when Pumi challenges, as she did at the beginning of this morning's show, those supposedly much better economies and those supposedly much better politicians than we have. But you had the, the health minister of Belgium saying you can have a threesome, but a foursome might be very dangerous. You know, people people telling us in this country we shouldn't wear open shoes or we can't buy warm food at, at, at Woolworths. These are the stupid oh, rules no. that we must remember when we go to the polls, because – I don't believe that even our opposition politicians had a better alternative at that stage. They were all singing from the same hymn sheet. Politicians will try to, in, in, the, in the vacuum that is created by a situation that people don't know or that we haven't experienced before, they will try to suggest solutions. And most of the solutions that politicians suggest are bullshit because they don't have a qualification. You don't qualify in politics there's no one who in South Africa is an expert in public administration or dealing with crises. Most of them are completely the winners of popularity contests, yeah. no matter what party they're from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's totally oh, true. They wouldn't shouting. get a job in the private sector. All right. All this shouting. Um, All this shouting past each other. Exactly. That's been my biggest outtake. My biggest outtake throughout this entire pandemic has really been about how much we we've defaulted to shouting at each other and not even trying to hear what the other person is shouting at us or rethinking it or or having a moment to let it land and and figure it out i mean it happens here all the time you know we're just shouting in every direction yeah. And well, I hope we, we shout less. I hope, listen more. I hope truth can regain some of the lost ground over the next few years because we're going to need it. It's not as if this is going to be the last pandemic or the last challenge to the world. Um, we know that there are constantly evolving natural and artificial problems that humans will have in yesterday's, our way. Yesterday's announcement from China, ironically, yeah. of a first man who has been diagnosed with bird flu. Yep. So there yep. you go. So that could be something we all have to deal with in the, in the near future. And let's hope that we are better equipped and that we've learned some lessons from this uh, pandemic and how badly it's been handled. And don't tell me, please, that any government in the world did a great job of handling it. They did not. They have proven all around and, and, and resoundingly 
to have been very shit at what they've done. Anyway, guys, that's about all the time we've got. Martin, it's always good to see you. Pumi, thank you very much for your insights this morning. And, of course, if you've listened to us and you've liked and subscribed, because they tell me that's hugely important. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. There we go. (laughs) Then uh, we appreciate you being part of our YouTube show and on cliffcentral.com. The podcast's available for download wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else cliffcentral.com. Thank you so much for being part of it this morning. We will see you tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Don't miss a thing. And uh, thank you to Nando's, of course, for being part of the Burning Platform, your only place to pick up honest and uh, sometimes very controversial, but usually in the long run we end up um, finding a, a place to say I told you so. This morning was one of those occasions. We will see you next week for the Burning Platform and tomorrow morning on this show. Cliffcentral.com.